Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Uh, great. So uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for fellowship and time together, for the hands that have watched over us during this week and for our families. We pray for those who are close to us. We pray for this community, and we pray for those who are dear to us but are far away. Ask this in your son's name. Amen. So um, maybe slightly less familiar figure to some people this week, John Bunyan. How many people have had a chance ever to look at Pilgrim's Progress? Uh, We've got quite a few people here. I'm not actually going to talk so much about Pilgrim's Progress today. I'm really going to talk about uh, John Bunyan's uh, other major work, which is a book called Grace Abounding. Grace Abounding, uh, which he wrote just before he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, is the story of his conversion. And it's, a, it's one of the, the great spiritual autobiographies, not just of the 17th century, but I think alongside uh, Augustine's Confessions, uh, C.S. Lewis, who we're going to talk about, uh, for whom it was an inspiration. The book has been enormously influential for a lot of people uh, reflecting on their conversion experiences, reflecting on their spiritual struggles. And in some ways, we're going to hear themes that are quite familiar to us if we had a chance to talk about uh, Augustine, if you were here for that, or last week talking about Luther. It's a story that's about terrible turmoil. It's a story about a life that is uh, reversed in many ways. It's a story about a life that finds grace but, and this is something that's quite interesting about Bunyan's story, although he comes to, to grace uh, in the book, actually fairly early in the book, he, can, he describes a life in which temptation, the devil plays a huge role in the story, temptation and doubt continue to be part of his life. So the kind of dynamic of uh, grace abounding, the dynamic of, of Bunyan's life is that of a very tough spiritual battle, a journey through the world. And that's what he writes, as you know, those of you who have had a chance to look at it, with Pilgrim's Progress, is very much a journey. But it's done so with sort of metaphorical figures. Uh, uh, famously, it has castles. It has Vanity Fair, which is this town with a, a sort of festival. Um, it has all sorts of... of things which in many ways kind of spiritualize or turn into symbolic form what is actually Bunyan's own life experience. Grace abounding is really the inspiration for Pilgrim's Progress, and it's really a, a detailed account of his conversion, and therefore I want to, to talk about this, but first to say a few words about this person, John Bunyan. Unlike Augustine, and unlike Luther, who we talked about last time, John Bunyan was not really an educated person. He came from a very humble family, and that was something that was actually really important to him when he becomes a preacher. He always emphasized his humble backgrounds. And in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, he frequently, the people who are often the kind of worst people are the kind of 
those who are completely lost in their riches, in their wealth, and care nothing for spiritual things. So there's a bit of a, there's a sense with Bunyan that his own humble beginnings, his father um, ha ran a kind of what we would call, so he was a sort of tinker, it was a, he was like a shop owner, a worker. Uh, his mother and sister, Bunyan's mother and sister, died when he was very young. His father married again very, very quickly. This was an experience that Bunyan would have himself. His own wife would die uh, relatively young after they had four children. And Bunyan would ultimately marry again. So he comes from a humble background. He's not a university person. He's not a person who's learnt Latin or Greek or any of the biblical uh, languages. He is a person who is in many ways, he, was, he went to a, a, a decent school, his father could afford that. But he was a person who was largely self-taught but also learnt through the communities in which he lived. Grace abounding is in many ways the story of Bunyan coming to know the Bible because he says in it his own youth was very much given to gaming and the kind of typical pursuits of a young man. He didn't care much for religion. He didn't have much interest in spiritual things. He says that he rarely read the Bible. So in some ways had probably what we might think of as a kind of conventional upbringing, of course, as typical of his time, he would go to church with his family, but he, he, he describes it as being quite cold. It didn't, it really had uh, little impact on him. But life, and, and this is why, you know, in spiritual autobiographies and people writing about themselves, we get these themes again and again. Like Augustine and like Luther, he describes himself as being a very sensitive and one at one, and he's clearly a person who's given to spiritual experiences, although he says in his youth he wasn't paying much attention to them. But throughout grace abounding, there are distinctive moments in which God seems to intervene in his life in almost kind of miraculous ways. And one of the first in this is when he's a youth, he's out playing, I think it's even on a Sunday, he's out playing with, with friends, they're playing a game, and he hears a voice from a, an, an invisible voice, from a, from a person he cannot at first see, which says to him very personally, will you leave behind these things? Or and follow me, or will you stay in your sins? And he's, he's out in this field, and he has this experience, and he looks up to the sky, and he believes he can see the face of Jesus himself. He recounts it in his story. But that doesn't bring about a full conversion by any means. It's just a first experience, and here we find this in both Augustine, who we've talked about, and Luther. There are often moments early in their lives which begin to stir up spiritual feelings, but the conversion <laughs> won't, won't happen till later. So with, with, with Bunyan, he goes off to join the army. And as you may be familiar, in the 16th or 17th century, 
England fell into a period of civil war, and it was a religious civil war. It was what was called between the royalists and, um, well, they, they had various denominations, the parliamentarians, the much more radical religious. And here we just need to pause for a second and hear something about what happened uh, in England after the Reformation of the 16th century. The English church was really split. It was split between those who upheld the kind of traditional order of, of, of a Protestantism, who still had cathedrals, you know, sort of the basis of what is today the Episcopal or Anglican traditions maintained many of the uh, rituals and liturgy. Its theology is Protestant, but it still in many ways holds on to the old ways. But of course, crucially, it becomes the state church and the monarch is the head of the church. But there were many groups and groups who were included in the title of Puritans, who emerged in the late 16th century and who flourished during the 17th century. And this is the tradition to which Bunyan belongs. They're sometimes called nonconformists because they don't attend the Church of England services. And the, their reason is that they think that the church is not sufficiently Protestant. They think, they break away, they think it's not, that it's not sufficiently grounded in the scripture, that it still holds on to old practices which could not be justified on the basis of the Bible. So they're, they're a much more sort of fervent evangelical in, in, in the sense that they're deeply attached to the Bible. And they're called dissenters because they don't go to the state church. They have their own communities. Now, some of them are Baptists, but there's all sorts of different groups that emerge. Some are Calvinists. Some, are, um, uh, some of them become even more radical, and they get names like the Ranters. Some will become, and Ranters is literally because their bodies would shake like the shakers that we have in a, in a later tradition, but the ranters were because, and they would speak, and of course their opponents, these names are often given to them by their opponents. Their opponents would say, in this kind of movement of the spirit, they would just rant. But there were all these different groups that emerged, and this is the world of John Bunyan. And Bunyan belonged to this, what was called dissenting tradition. He, he grew up in a town called Bedford and went to a church that was not part of the state church. And preaching was a crucial part of his life because he himself would become a preacher. But before this, as a young man, he does what many young men of his time did. He joins the army. And the Civil War in England starts in the year 1642, and it will result in 1649 in the king of England, Charles I, actually being executed, uh, many of those who were participating, or at least three prominent figures, those of you who are familiar with New Haven, actually fled across the Atlantic Sea and took refuge in New Haven. And streets like Goss and Whaley, which are significant streets in New Haven, are named for those figures who had actually signed Charles I's death warrant. So they came, many of those people, fled to uh, New England. But 
uh, Bunyan was on the side of Parliament. He was on the side of the religious dissenters who thought, who wanted to overthrow the Church of England to get because they thought it was too Catholic. And that leads to a civil war during the 1640s when Bunyan is involved on one side, the parliamentarians, the religious radicals, and he joins the army. He's a soldier. But he do, we do, as far as we know, he never actually got into any kind of military conflict. He was part of a garrison. But during that time, when he was in the army, he encountered other sort of religious um, Christian enthusiasts, preachers, and that becomes a crucial part of his, the beginnings of his conversion story. But then he has uh, a moment, and I want to, to, to share a couple of passages uh, with you. Um, he then has one of the beginning point of his most, of, of his uh, conversion story involves a series of women. And one of my next talks will be about Puritan women because many of the, women, of the people within this dissenting group were women. And Bunyan describes an experience which I want to just share with you uh, very uh, briefly. He goes, he goes, he's out for a walk and then he's, he's walking through the town. And when he's walking through the town, he comes to a group of women, three or four women who are standing at the street corner, or they may have been sitting, we don't know. But they're sitting there talking about scripture. And they're speaking the language of scripture, he says. And they're, they're talking about the promises of Christ. He happens to walk past them, and he stops for a moment, and he hears them talking. And it's not because, and he doesn't say it's because, you know, it's surprising because they're women. In fact, women play an important role in, uh, not only in Bunyan's conversion story, but in his life. Godly women are often powerful witnesses uh, to the gospel. But this first sort of beginning moment of his conversion <laughs> is when he encounters these women on the street corner, and they are talking about the Bible. And suddenly he, he hears them and he describes this experience where so, uh, literally in terms of the light begins to shine on him. He's heard the gospel, he's heard people talk about the Bible all through his youth, but suddenly he has this experience whereby there, that he hears, he says literally, he hears where he couldn't, he, he, his ears were blocked before. Suddenly the word, and in their conversation, he feels the presence of the Spirit. Now this is uh, important to, to uh, Bunyan's story because unlike um, Augustine, remember this, when he, he was in the garden and he heard that voice that said, take and read, that voice that sounded like a child, but he couldn't see the child, it was simply a voice through a garden wall. And he goes and he picks up scripture picks up the Bible and opens it to, uh, the, to the Paul's letter to the Romans. And just like Luther had that experience of, again, opening the Bible and coming to where Paul in Romans talks about how those who are Christians will live by faith. 
Bunyan's description of his conversion is, is a little different. He does not see con uh, conversion as a kind of momentary thing, a kind of Damascus Road experience. Grace abounding, which is the story of his conversion, is about conversion as a kind of drawn out process. There are various stages. He never says, this was the absolute moment of my conversion. What he identifies is a series of moments when suddenly God is speaking to him directly, when he has this direct experience of Christ and of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But in between those, he talks about you know, the struggles that he goes through. So there's a very interesting dynamic in Bunyan's life. He has these, mom these moments of intense experience of God, which are then followed by moments of what we might call, and we had this with Luther, of kind of spiritual torment. And the devil plays a really important character, a really important role in this. He talks about his life constantly in terms of struggling with the devil. And I'll just um, point to another passage uh, in which he talks about this. He says, in prayer also, I have been greatly troubled at this time. Sometimes I have thought that I should see the devil, nay, thought that I should fell him behind me, pull on my clothes. He would also be continually at me in time of prayer, to have done, to break off, to make haste. He would say, you have prayed enough, and you should stay no longer. He would draw my mind away. Sometimes also he would cast in such wicked thoughts as these that I must pray to him or for him. I have thought that sometimes of that, fall down, or if you will fall down and worship me, the reference, of course, to the devil's temptation of Christ in Matthew. So this Bunyan's story is very much the story of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, where they are journeying along the road, yet they encounter all these different trials and tribulations. It's a kind of dynamic where conversion for him takes place over a period of time. Now, he begins, after this experience with the women, where he hears them talking about scripture, and he has his first sort of intense sense of the presence of Christ, he then joins a church, which is a, a church which is full of uh, com a community of people who are dissenters, uh, people who are what their opponents would call radicals. But at the heart of it was preaching. And he begins to tell how, for the first time, having grown up going to church, but not feeling particularly moved by it, he describes how, following this incident with the women, he now hears what the preachers are saying. The word of God in church is starting to speak to him. And he speaks as he wants to become a preacher. He wants to become a preacher of the word. And he, this, is, this is the next sort of stage in his, in his spiritual development. He decides he's going to, he's left the army. Uh, he's decided that he wants to become a preacher. But not just a, not a preacher in a particular church, 
He wants to be a preacher who travels around an itinerant preacher. And often that meant preaching not necessarily in churches, but in public squares, in villages, sometimes in the countryside. To make his story a little bit, uh, uh, speed it up a bit, as a result of this preaching, he's arrested. And he's arrested and put on trial. And this is in the year, uh, this, this happens right around the period of the beginning of the 1650s. So you can see he's only, he's only about in, in his early 30s at this point. Uh, so he's arrested about 1662, and he spends the next 12 years of his life in prison. And it's while he's in prison that he has the most intense experience. I'll come to this in a few, few moments. Um, the most it's in, in prison that he has the most intense experience which he would describe as his fullest conversion. And grace abounding is actually written while he's in prison. He writes it on scraps of paper, on anything that he can get a hold of. And grace abounding, this, this wonderful book which I, I really recommend to you, it's not very long, it's, it's about 80 pages long at best. Uh, Grace abounding for him is his spiritual autobiography because while he's in prison, he has this sense that his conversion has become complete, or that what he's been struggling with over the years, he has now come to a full relationship with Christ. And it's the prison experience, and he very much sees his life in terms of the Apostle Paul. And his writings, Grace Abounding, is very much influenced by uh, Paul. And Paul is, uh, let me just uh, give you this uh, passage from first, from uh, Timothy, which he quotes. If I can find it there uh, very quickly. Yes, he says, he quotes at the beginning of 1 Timothy 1. And he says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is Paul writing. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. You will be familiar with this famous passage. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And that's where the title of the book comes from exceedingly abundant, the grace of our Lord. And this is where uh, Bunyan calls his account of his conversion, grace abounding. But he adds to it the title. He says, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. And therefore, he's, he's modeling Paul, his prison experience he sees in terms of Paul's own prison experience. So that, so that this, the conversion story is structured around this emulation of Paul. And the conversion story really has three parts. And, this, and in, this, in its three parts, it becomes a model for other people. We'll talk about this next time when I'm back, about Puritan conversion stories. But it has three uh, aspects to it which in, found in this story. The first is the pre-conversion life. 
which for Bunyan is this life of being a kind of ambitious young man who's given to, as he will say, drinking and gaming and, and not really paying much attention to the Lord or to scripture or to really being very moved by church services at all. That's the first part. The second part, which in grace abounding is the longest part, is of his gradual conversion. And he talks about those moments in his life, such as with the women, but also his experiences at other places along the way, and including his prison experience, where he feels this conversion, this conversion to the Lord. And then the last part, part three of this work, is that his, his life post-conversion, what his conversion life actually looks like. And what's really, I think, really interesting there is the way in which he talks about the w his conversion in terms of a series of visions and moments when he feels God speaking to him. But if you read Grace Abounding, the book is absolutely suffused. It's just full of biblical passages. And what uh, Bunyan is really saying is that conversion for him is an internalizing of the word of scripture so that he as the text goes on increasingly speaks in the language of scripture whereas he says at the beginning of his life the bible was just something he heard he could sometimes understand it not understand it but it didn't really move him so conversion for Bunyan is really about the conversion to the word that that he, and, and you can see in the text increasingly that he becomes, that he speaks with the, the, the language of, of, of Scripture so that Paul's words in particular, not just Paul, but Paul's words in particular become his words. He speaks with the voice of Paul. So I want to just, um, I I'm not time for very much of this, but I want to... to um, uh, just to give you a sense of some of his language. This is, this is when he's begun to, to feel this conversion experience and the joy that it brings with him. Then he says, then breaking out of the bitterness of my soul, I said to myself with a grievous sigh, how can God comfort such a wretch as I? I had no sooner said it, but this returned upon me, an echo doth answer a voice. This sin is not unto death. These are all scriptural passages and in the text they're in italics. So you can see how much scripture is in, are in his words. At which I was as if I had been raised out of the grave and, and cried out again, Lord, how couldst thou find such a word as this? For I was filled with admiration at the fitness and also of the unexpectedness of the sentence the fitness of the word and the rightness of the timing of it, that power and sweetness and light and glory that came to it with it also was marvelous to me to find how I was for the time out of doubt as to that about which I so much was in doubt before. My fears before were that my sin would not be pardonable and so that I had no right to, to pray repent or that if I did it would be 
no advantage or profit from truth. But now, thought I, this sin is not unto death. Then it is pardonable. And one of the, the, the crucial moments in his conversion story is that he thinks that he has committed the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. And he sees himself as beyond redemption, beyond forgiveness. And one of the major dynamics in his conversion is just from that passage that I, I read here briefly, is that he comes to realize that he is forgiven. That Christ's forgiveness, pardoning of sins, reaches to him because he sees himself as the very worst of people. He talks the unpardonable sin that he commits in his own mind is that he believes that he has sold Christ for money. Not, not literal money, but he's essentially betrayed Christ. And he thinks he can never be forgiven for that. So I want to uh, we just be mindful of the time just to take two more minutes here to give a sense of why one of the reasons why Bunyan is such a spiritual master is not only the beauty of this conversion experience, but two other things that I would, I would stress. He gives perhaps one of the most moving accounts of the challenges of becoming a Christian. That how even in conversion, that uh, we can, the devil will continue to tempt, the devil will continue to try to lure one away from the path. And that he, that, and he describes this in, in, in many pages, uh, in, in, sorry, in, in many accounts. I'll just give you a quick sense of this. And he says, um, and scripture says, and him that cometh to me, I will no wise cast out on the comfort that I have from this word in no wise as to who should say by no means for nothing, whatever he hath done. But Satan would greatly labor to pull this promise from me, telling me that Christ did not mean me, and such as I, but sinners of a lower rank that had not done as I had done. So this consciousness that the Christian life remains a struggle. And one of the reasons Bunyan becomes such a, uh, a classic, and I, my, in my family, my mother grew up in a kind of Methodist family, which was... Um, in eastern in Canada was more of a uh, kind of Puritan strain. You know, Bunyan was household reading, as it was for so many people. And one of the, 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 the things that Bunyan, I think, really reaches to us is the extraordinary courage that he has in the struggle to lead the Christian life, and that that courage takes him sort of step by step. So the, the journey is always towards Jerusalem, but he tells us, he gives us this, an account of how on a day-to-day -day basis we must struggle. And his book is in many ways to talk about how to, we must be encouraged because Christ's promises are forever. And that's the point that he keeps coming back to. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for the moment. And um, you know anybody who wants to reflect on that or or ask me any questions, I'm happy to do that.
Yeah, well, Bunyan becomes a Baptist preacher. Bunyan would have been a little uneasy about becoming a Stonegate window. It's just like these monuments to Calvin and others. You know, they spent their lives trying to sort of uh, rail against what they saw as adultery and uh, or sorry, idolatry, and uh, to uh, to have a monument put up to them. I think they would find that very disturbing. So, those of you who have had a chance at some point to to look at Pilgrim's Progress, what do you remember about it? Maybe you've read it re more recently. What do you recall? Is there anything that stood out about it? Yes, please. Yeah. 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 I mean, Bunyan is, a, is, is, is very much part of that world that sees election as a crucial part of the story. So that's one of the things, and I'll talk about this when we come to the Puritans uh, and Puritan women next week, is, is this constant self-examination. And that's what you get in Grace Abounding. He's constantly examining himself spiritually. And one of the things they're doing is looking for signs of their election. And so, that, so election is an important part. Through much of it, he, he, he goes into this kind of despair. Um, and, and he says, even after his conversion, he has moments of where he's struggling. But then, they, but, but you know, he says that scripture always pulls him back out of it. Uh, but through much of the book, I mean, he, you know, this is the title uh, suggests, you know, he says, the chief of sinners is what he calls himself in this, again, modeling himself on Paul. So yes, I mean he's he you know he's and he says and what part of his conversion is that even the worst wretch he thinks he's committed a sin for which he cannot be forgiven. Yes, yes, yes. I mean he's he's I mean the 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 end of the story is is about joy. This is this becomes a classic part of of Puritan culture. This sense that you uh, the Christian life involves constant self-examination, and this this on one hand it it is a rigorous you know spiritual exercise, but as as is often pointed out, it could lead people into a sense of doubting their own uh, election, and you see that in Bunyan. He, he kind of he goes up and down at various points because then he thinks you know he's tempted by the devil perhaps he does doubt perhaps and then he then he will say I meditated on scripture and and one of the the things that he you know keeps bringing him back is reading scripture this is the way but he's 
there is still a kind of volatility in this, and that that remains. I mean, certainly we know this from American Puritan culture. Remains a kind of concern with godliness. And when you know there are signs of ungodliness, people become worried that this means that that person is 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 not truly a Christian. Yes, please. Yes, he was. He, he, yeah. Yeah, this is, so the Civil War is really taking place during these years of the 1640s. So uh, just before, before he's in prison, and he was a soldier, uh, but as far as we know, he was never in battle. He served in a garrison in a town, and there's where he heard some, he encountered people who were playing an important role in his first sort of stirrings of, of hearing the scripture. So it's in this period of 1640s, that's when the time when he hears the women talking on the street. So he sees these various moments of God speaking to him as, as kind of stirring what he will see as his conversion story. So he is a soldier, but he's unharmed. He's probably never uh, in battle. But there are very serious battles at this point Betwe between parliament and, and, and the monarchy is Charles I. But it's also a division between the established state church and these more radical Puritans and, and groups of other people. So it, it's a religious war in, in many, it, it, it's other things as well, but it's, a, it's two different visions of, of religion in conflict. And it results, that's when, it, when, when at the end of it, when Charles is executed, this is when you get Oliver Cromwell um, and Burr Fielder. His preaching, <laughs> because because he was not licensed by the state church to preach, and he was doing what they didn't allow, which is to to preach in the street or in unauthorized uh, unauthorized uh, unauthorized uh, church services. So this this radical was actually became illegal, and because he was preaching outside the Church of England churches in these other gatherings. Uh, he was engaging in what was illegal activity, and in Grace Abounding, he describes the court case where he's, he's, he's tried, and then he's thrown in prison, and a lot of other dissenters are in prison, and he describes his experience of being with them. Many of them die, um, but he takes this as a kind of sign of God's purpose that he survives, uh, but he's 12 years in, in prison. Uh, well, it's, it's this is no, this is before. This is he. He was before Charles. He, he, he um, sorry. He's in prison after after Charles is 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 killed. So he's actually in prison um, from the fifteen uh, from fifteen sixty until fifteen seventy. So it's during the period of, of Cromwell's Republic. But he's these are Cromwell's people who have actually imprisoned him. Yeah, because he was seen as a dangerous dissenter. Yes, please. really in some ways to any period of, of religious persecution uh, because he sees this as a struggle, first of all, against the established church and 
he sees that they, his belief is that they are stopping the true preaching of the gospel, which is his own experience. And then after his experience, after, after the, uh, what's called the, uh, the, the kind of republican period was introduced under Cromwell, he's still being, he's still arrested and put in. Uh, and then uh, at the end, while he's in prison, the monarchy is actually, uh, will ultimately be restored after this. But he's, he's under both uh, the state church and under Cromwell, he is suffering persecution. And in that sense, he, do, he, he sees in Grace Abounding that that persecution is because he is preaching the word of God. So that, in that sense, is, is comparable to any other circumstance where people feel like the official church is, is opposing what they're trying to do. But of course, for his opponents, he's seen as this kind of dangerous and even seditious uh, figure. Sorry? Yes, yes. I mean, he's, he, he sees, if, if you read, you know, read Grace Abounding, he constantly sees himself in the role of these apostles, not just Paul, but Peter as well. I mean, this is, this is persecution for preaching the word. And that defines his own experience. Yes, please. I mean, obviously, the Bible is, is of, of crucial importance to him, but he's very much uh, influenced by the rise of the Baptist churches in the 17th century, so that he holds to um, a theology which is essentially of believer's baptism, of uh, Baptist, what we would call polity church organization, so a kind of congregational uh, but his own theology is, I think, really interesting because it's, a, as is everything in this period, it's such a mixture of things. But, you know, he's, there's certainly, I mean, his notion of election, which is very much in line with sort of traditional Calvinism. Uh, he's also adopted some of the more radical views of his time, which is of the immediacy of the experience of the Holy Spirit. And so he, he for instance, sees church services as primarily are based around the preaching of the word. He, there's, you'll find almost nothing on the sacraments in his right. So he's, influ he's, he's, he's very influenced by that sort of more radical voices of his day. And in fact, these branches that I spoke about, he, he spends time with them. So he's pulling together a, a, a whole range of, of um, not only his reading of scripture, but which, which is really the whole dynamic of of this is that he becomes, he speaks more and more the language of scripture, but his own theology and view of, of the church is very much shaped by the kind of radical currents that are, are all over the, the place. But, but within that, there's also a kind of core of, of Calvinist theology. Yes, please. What do you mean by the next phase of faith? I mean, he feels like he comes to a very biblical faith 
and at moments there, there are, he has visions, he hears voices, but there, there are no kind of miracles in the, no, not, not in that sense. I mean, but you know, that's what brings him to a kind of rapturous view of, of, of scripture as, as conversion. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, if you, when we talk about C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis has a very high view of, of Bunyan. But the Bunyan's conversion story, I mean, well, so, so do Presbyterians. And, you know, he's, he's, he's widely regarded as far. I mean, although his own views were pretty radical in many ways, his conversion story, and it, you know, which is a very beautiful story of, of coming to Christ through uh, the word and these and through, I mean, one of the reasons he's, he's so admired is because he continues to suffer persecution through his life. I mean, it's, it's a story of enormous courage. And so in the 19th century, Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, but also Grace Abounding, even by the end of, by the end of his life, when he dies in, in 1568, his, his Grace Abounding, which was produced in prison and then very quickly printed, has gone through almost 10 editions. So it's a contemporary classic. It's, it, you know, he, in his own life, uh, he, he's, he becomes a very well-known author uh, as well as preacher. So he's, he's celebrated in his own time, but he becomes, I mean, my, as I say, my mother grew up a Methodist, but Bunyan was kind of, uh, you know, was al alongside the Bible and, and uh, you know, other things as, you know, these were books he had in the house. Well, that's, that's, you know, very much Bunyan's, you know, he sees that in Paul, he sees that in himself, that he sees imprisonment, not necessarily as a punishment, but actually as a kind of spiritual experience. No, it's in grace, grace abounding because he obviously uh, there's a life that's written to about him after he dies, and so that finishes the story. So grace abounding only takes him into uh, the 1670s because he writes it as a you know it's like Dietrich Bonhoeffer kind of letters from the prison. It's just this this story of conversion. Well, but then so it ends while he's still alive. But at that point, he then when he he's let out of prison finally, that's when he he returns to preaching and becoming an itinerant preacher. And that's where he finds his fulfillment in both writing these stories, because he will write Pilgrim's Progress after this. He writes it uh, in, in the late uh, 1570s, after he's come out of prison. Uh, and Pilgrim's Progress kind of follows on from Grace Abounding. But he sees himself now as a preacher and a writer. And this is, this is him kind of following Paul. <laughs> 